Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. I want to introduce Dr. Carabo Jackson. He is the Abraham Harris Professor of Education and Social Policy and Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. He is a member of Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. So you play many roles uh, in your life, but here at at the White House, what is uh, your primary uh, job here? Well, thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, so what I do here on the council is what we do generally is we provide advice for the for the president, obviously. We provide economic advice to not only the president himself, but also to the overall presidency. So different organizations or, or within the White House, say, for example, the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, and also sometimes also other other areas of the cabinet uh, would seek advice about economic thinking to advise policymaking and also just provide advice on in terms of where the economy is going, provide some guidance in terms of understanding the numbers as they come through to think through how you know how we should proceed in making sure the economy is strong and also how we should implement policies in a way that is economically sound. Well then of course I have to ask you, is our economy strong? It is very strong. So if you think about where we are now relative to where people expected us to be about maybe a year and a half ago, we are in a very, very good position. So if you think through uh, about 18 months ago, there was a prediction that there was no way that we were going to go through 2023 um, and br- bring down inflation at the same time, not plunge the economy into a deep recession. And in fact, what we've seen is that we've had Two years, 24 consecutive months of unemployment below 4%. And we've had very, very strong economic growth. We've had inflation come down two-thirds off this peak. And we've seen, I think in the last year, we had the economy grow at 3.1%, which is uh, which is much stronger than other nations that we've seen. So if you see a look at our growth relative to many of our colleagues across the, across the pond in Europe, for example, we've seen about twice as much GDP growth relative to what they've seen. And our inflation has actually come down. So does that mean that the dollar is stronger uh, internationally, or is it stronger overall? Or wh- how do we determine what makes a strong economy at this stage? So, you know, I think the best way to think about a strong economy is thinking about uh, what everyday people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. So, if you look in the in the past six months, what we've seen is that overall wages are going up for the vast majority of Americans. So if you look at the 80% of workers who are in non, uh, non-supervisory non roles, they've actually seen their wages go up faster than prices, which is which means that overall, the uh, each paycheck that individuals are receiving is allowing them to buy a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's very, very strong. That means that overall, the economic well-being of Americans is improving. Um, in addition to that, we're seeing, as I said, as I mentioned before, overall unemployment is low, which means that the economy is generating more jobs uh, then, or I should say, is generating enough jobs to accommodate people who are entering the labor market, um, which is a good sign. It sort of shows an economy that is healthy, accommodating the workers that would look for, that are seeking work, and also delivering wage gains to a lot of workers um, who are who are you know just trying to make ends meet and making life a little bit better. So I think that's one way to to think of the overall strength of the economy. And at the same time, like I mentioned, inflation is coming down, um, which is just. Everything is aligning to, to indicate that we are in a good position. Um, and, you know, we've had through leadership of, of obviously President Biden, Vice President Harris, small businesses and the American worker, we've basically had a strong economy. 
Yet why does there seem to persist this perception that at the gas pump, at the grocery store, at the cash register, uh, when it comes to paying rent or a mortgage, that people do not feel that this economy is as strong as it should be for them? And they feel as though they are still seeing inflation in these very important sectors of the economy. How? Why is there such a, a difference in what the message is coming from the White House and what people are experiencing on the ground? That's, that's a great question. So there are a few things I want to unpack here. The first is, uh, and a lot of people get it confused and it's complicated, which is the difference between inflation and prices. Mm-hmm. So inflation basically describes the change in prices over time. And the price level is how much you're actually paying at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. What we saw in two years, like two years ago is that we had very, very high inflation. So prices were just increasing rapidly. And that's something that is very uncomfortable because as prices go up rapidly, if our wages are not going up at, to keep pace with that, that means our purchasing power is actually going down. Sure. So the way you deal with that is you bring inflation down so prices are not growing rapidly. And ideally, what you want is you want inflation to come down at the same time that wage growth is is going to go up so that our purchasing power improves. And that's exactly what we've seen. We've seen inflation come down off the peaks of near 9% down to something much closer to three. Um, and we've seen wage growth uh, basically outpacing inflation. So individuals' pocketbooks are, are improving. So that's the first thing. Um, the other thing I'll mention is you know, a lot of the things you describe, say, for example, housing, the price of housing, mm-hmm. it, that's, this is a long-standing problem that's been mm-hmm. in part of our economy for, for 20, 20, 20, 30 years. Um, so, you know, one of the things the administration is doing is really working hard to increase the supply of housing. So, for example, you know, it's a supply and demand system. So, if, if we're not building enough housing, um, affordable housing, that's going to make it difficult to afford housing and it puts upward pressure on prices. So, the administration has worked hard to expand what is known as a low-income housing tax credit to promote the creation and the building of affordable housing. Um, also, try to encourage local uh, local jurisdictions to ease up on, on some of the, the housing uh, rules, regulations that sometimes limits how much new housing can be built. Now, it's important to highlight that those things are determined at the local level, not on the federal level. But the federal government can certainly provide incentives and guidance for local jurisdictions to ease up housing restrictions to facilitate the creation of, of affordable housing. That's exactly what this administration has has really been been focused on doing. Post pandemic, there are there were uh, many financial uh, aids in place during the pandemic to help people to help small businesses. Um, but now the pandemic is, uh, for mo- for all intents and purposes, at least over the crisis point. So now those programs are going away. How can people work around? Because it, it was shown during the pandemic that these were programs that were extremely helpful to people. That's absolutely right. Through, I think, tremendous foresight and leadership of the Biden-Harris administration, a lot of the ARP, American Rescue Plan money, went towards making sure the economy was resilient. And you're right to point out that some of those some of those supports are starting to, to dry up as we have sort of gotten over the, the most acute phase of the pandemic and we're sort of returning to normalcy. So it's sort of natural that some of those things are have gone away, but some of those things we recognize at the time were tremendously valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good example of that would be the child tax credit, the expanded child tax credit, which is something that when it was put in place, we saw overall child poverty dr- drop dramatically to levels we hadn't seen in decades. Um, 
And as the child, child uh, credit expired, something that the administration did not want to happen, um, we saw child poverty go back up. So as you know, this is something that the Biden-Harris administration is trying to make, uh, make permanent. Um, they're trying to make sure that the expanded child tax credit is something that becomes established in law um, to make sure that overall poverty is reduced. Um, and I should just point out, this is something that benefits uh, low-income families tremendously, allows them to make a lot of payments just to pay rent, to pay for food, all the things you sort of mentioned to make sure they have a high quality of living. The other uh, key thing that I think uh, I should highlight is the um, the child care stabilization funds. Um, a lot of that money, we've done some work actually at the Council of Economic Advisors showing that when we provided that additional money to child care providers during the pandemic to keep their doors open, they actually kept prices lower than they would have otherwise been. They were able to uh, have more slots available. And it's actually in in increased labor market participation for young moms. Mm -hmm. It allows moms to go back to work. And unfortunately, uh, at the expiration of those funds, we're starting to see some of that unravel. And again, this is why uh, President uh, Biden and Vice President Harris have proposed in the supplemental request $16 billion to basically reestablish those funds to keep the childcare market afloat to really facilitate um, working moms who need access to childcare in order to contribute to the economy for themselves and also the economy writ large. I'm Tanya Pendleton. This is Reality Check. And we are here with Dr. Karabu Jackson. He is the Abraham Harris Professor of Education and Social Policy and Professor of Economics at Northwestern University. He's also a member of uh, the Biden-Harris Council of Economic Advisors, but you have also done some significant research in early childhood education and how resources make a dramatic difference in the outcomes of uh, young people. Tell us about your research and what you found there. Absolutely. So, you know, I've, we've I sort of looked at at some uh, what happens essentially when we provide more financial resources uh, to children. Some of it in the K through 12 system, looking at, at public schools, and also when we provide financial resources to establish early childcare centers, specifically looking at Head Start. Um, so, to, to to not to get too technical, but one of the issues that you always encounter in this area as well, how do you un uncover causation? And what you can see is that you can sort of look at what what happened to places when they suddenly got an infusion of funds due to the passage of, say, school finance reforms or the establishment of the Head Start um, program. And what we found was that children who were exposed to higher levels of funding, both in early childhood and also in the K through 12 system, mm -hmm. we looked at their outcomes later on. We were able to track them um, through 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 adulthood, and what we found: uh, these are people who were, you know, basically young people uh, in the 70s and 80s, and now they're sort of adults. We basically found that even sometimes within the same family, if one sibling was exposed to higher levels of funding than the other, the one that was exposed to higher level of funding, they're more likely to, to go to college. They're more likely to graduate high school. They're less likely to be incarcerated. They're more likely to have higher earnings and less. Likely likely to be dependent on um, public supports when they were older. So there are a whole host of areas where we, we sort of found that like when you spend the money early, mm -hmm. particularly from in, for individuals from low-income backgrounds, um, it actually ends up paying for itself in some sense because you spend the money now and later on, these people are more likely to work, they're more likely to be paying taxes and they're paying that for 40 years. Um, so you, you end up having a sort of a return on investment as it were from a, from a policy standpoint that is greater than one for one, which is a tremendous benefit that's not even taking into account the large benefit to the individuals themselves. So now that we know that, and your research has proven that, what are the obstacles to actually making that happen? Well, you know, the, the Biden-Harris administration, we have worked hard to try to increase the amount of support we have for high-quality child care, um, also trying to make sure that we have funding for the K-12 system. Mm -hmm. um, as you also know, um, 
the presidency is not does not determine these things. These are all things that are determined by Congress. So the, what we are providing the leadership to try to encourage, um, you know, the Congress to do what they should do and make sure that we have funds for our young people. What are the obstacles that you're facing, though, in, in even dealing with Congress? Because this really seems like it would be something that would be completely bipartisan. You're, you're pouring resources or more resources into early childhood education. And as you just said, you have a, a, these people who end up becoming productive adults who pay more into our tax system. So what are, when you're providing this leadership, what is the pushback on this? Because it, it just seems like a no-brainer, quite honestly. It's certainly a no-brainer to me, and it's also a no-brainer to to this administration, um, but I will not wade into politics in terms of why there are <laughs> there are uh, there's opposition to this. Uh, let me ask you this then: You also did some interesting research and found out uh, some things that we should know about teachers and how they impact their students in terms of soft skills versus data sets. Can you mm -hmm. talk about that? Absolutely. So one of the things that, that I did in some research and, and also follow-up work is just trying to figure out what the effect of teachers are or is on the outcomes of children. And if you think about it, you know, when children are in the classroom, particularly in the elementary years, um, the vast majority of the time that they spend in school is in front of a teacher. So mm -hmm. it sort of stands to reason that when you expose children to high-quality teachers, um, their outcomes are, 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 are much, much improved. So what I did in some work um, was sort of get a sense of what we mean by, by high quality teaching. And I think uh, what we often saw historically was there was a focus on looking at test scores as being the primary way that we measure outcomes for mm -hmm. children. And this is certainly a valuable way to measure what children know. But uh, the thinking is that, well, it may not capture the full essence of all the all the skills that children need to be productive adults in society. Um, so what I did in some research was to say, well, maybe there are some teachers that are improving test scores, but they're also improving other soft skills. Um, soft skills that you see reflected in terms of things like whether students are more likely to, to show up to class on time, things that are uh, measured by whether they're having dis disciplinary outcomes. Also, you can measure some of these things using surveys. There's survey-based measures that ask students about the extent to which they're engaged with school. And you can see some teachers are moving the needle on those skills. So what I basically documented in a series of papers is that there are teachers who are improving test scores, but there are also teachers who are improving these soft skills, as it were. I don't know why we call them soft, but yeah. these skills that are not well <laughs> measured by test scores. And in fact, the teachers who are moving the needle on these sort of so-called so, so soft skills sometimes have much larger effects on really, really important long-run outcomes, such as the likelihood of graduating from school, going to college, and the likelihood of being arrested. So uh, I think the takeaway from that research is that we need to take a broader, more holistic view of how we measure success in the schooling system. And that's basically what the, what the, what the research showed. I'll, I'll just sort of highlight the fact that you know, this administration has been very forward-looking in this regard. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the way that we sort of started measuring success um, in the Department of Education in this administration has been to pivot, not to move away from test scores necessarily, but to take a broader view, looking at some of these softer skills, um, investing in some of the wraparound services, such as um, having school counselors, um, having people who are social workers to make sure that these soft skills are really uh, taken care of in the education system. So my research really points to the importance of that. And I think we're seeing this administration is really leading, is really leading into that in the policy as well. So maybe going forward that we have less of a reliance on these scores that have are impacted by all kinds of things and more on what uh, using a metric to determine how teachers are progressing based on how they're impacting their students over time. I mean, I guess that is hard to follow in the long term, but certainly something to think about um, in terms of determining teacher quality. 
That's that's absolutely right. I and mean, I think one thing, if you look at, at, at what we we're looking at since the pandemic, you know, one of the issues we were, we're seeing in the data is, you know, it's not just that test scores have fallen. We're seeing chronic absenteeism mm-hmm. and we're seeing these problems are much more prevalent in areas that have a high shares of low income chi- children. So it's going to take a sort of all hands on deck approach that to, that's going to really have to take a broader look as the school, as a community um, and really focus not just on the numeracy and literacy skills, which are absolutely important, but the broader things to educate a child. Wonderful. Dr. Karabu Jackson, the Abraham Harris Professor of Education and Social Policy, Professor of Economics at Northwestern University, and a member of Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. Thank you so much for being with us on Reality Check today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com. 